to you this morning to take your Bible, make your way to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark. We're going to look at a uh, familiar passage this morning in verse 14 down through verse number 20. This is the calling of the disciples by Jesus there along the seashore of Galilee. And uh, I find within this calling and in this passage, along with parallel passages, a great uh, exhortation to us as Christians uh, to follow Christ. And so the title of the message is, They Followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. And there's one thing I want to be said of me when my life is said and done, and it's that statement. He followed Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He loved Jesus. And I pray that is true for all of us here today, but I think we can glean a few things from this passage that would encourage us in that matter. So notice with me in Mark chapter number 1 and verse 14 through down, down through verse, um, or excuse me, verse 16 down through verse 20. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We think about following Jesus this morning. What would it take for us to forsake everything and to follow Jesus, to give our life in, uh, in pursuit of following Jesus? You see, why do we see people in Scripture and throughout history give their whole lives to following Christ and to serving Him, to using the life, the one life that they have, as unto the Lord, as unto Christ? See, here in our text, we see this very thing happen. Why did these disciples forsake everything? They left their nets, their, their jobs, their families for a time to follow Jesus. The answer rests in who Jesus is. The answer rests in who Jesus is, in what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. You see, there are many pursuits that men and women give their lives to in this world. But understand this, church, that there is no pursuit that can compare to giving your life to the cause of Christ. There's just not anything that compares to living unto Christ. Because following Christ is the highest and most holy call upon us because truly Jesus is the only one worthy of following. Jesus is the only one worthy of following. You know, we live in a, uh, a very technologically advanced age, right, with social media and everything, and it seems like many today are, are consumed with followers, right? You get on Facebook or Twitter, and I find it interesting to see that so-and-so has this many followers, right? They follow their feed, and, and I, I like to follow certain ones. I follow different preachers and theologians and friends and family and, and church people, and there's, there's good things that you can glean from that. And, but when you, when you click the follow button, it doesn't mean that you're, uh, you know, their life is going to become your life, unless you're kind of a crazy person, and you're just uh, on their page every day and just Creepo, so if you're doing that, stop, because that ain't right. Uh, but, you know, we, we have that idea of following people. But when it comes to, to following Jesus, when, when I talk about following Jesus, I'm not talking about following from a distance. I'm not talking about maybe getting a sporadic update or checking a profile here or there. 
We're talking about a life commitment that impacts the moments of our days. A life commitment that impacts the moments of our everyday life. I'm talking about unrestrained obedience and commitment to one person. And you're committed to this one person because of who this person is. He's not just the average Joe or your friend down the road. He's the one Savior. He's the one Lord. And he's the one King. One meaning there is nobody else but him in those positions, holding those titles. And this is what we see the disciples do. You notice that they left their nets and they followed him. If there's anything that you should commit your life to doing this year, this is the first Sunday of 2024. If there's anything that your life should be committed to this year and every year, it should be to following Jesus with your entire heart. So I want to bring out a few things from this text and a parallel passage that I think reveals more about following Christ. Because Christian, you are called out of this world to do that very thing, to follow Jesus with your life. Notice with me in our notes, number one this morning, the message of Jesus. What is the message of Jesus that he brought as he came into the world? The message ties into why we follow him. But notice that firstly, Jesus, he preached the coming of the kingdom. He preached the coming of the kingdom. So why is that significant? Let me show you here in a moment as we come through the text. Understand just a little background that our text takes place at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. We see Jesus is baptized earlier in this chapter by John the Baptist and officially began his earthly ministry. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. Not long after Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist was put into prison. And then that brings us to verse 14. And I want you to notice this about Jesus early in his ministry. What he starts with. Verse 14 reads, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, we often hear and speak of this term, gospel, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God. Now, when you find here is within this message is that Jesus, he is essentially continuing the message that John the Baptist was preaching before he was taken into prison. What was the message that John the Baptist preached? Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, he preached to the people of Israel Repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You say, well, why was John the Baptist preaching this? Do you know why John the Baptist was preaching the kingdom of God is at hand? It is because the king of that kingdom had arrived. And that king is none other than King Jesus that we're reading about here today. The king had arrived. Now, you can imagine the anticipation as John the Baptist comes on the scene and he starts preaching. There hasn't been any revelation from God, any word from God in a few hundred years. And they're all expecting a kingdom that he promised. And John the Baptist, all of a sudden, he's out there preaching in the wilderness and baptizing. And, and he's declaring, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we know it had the people of Israel stirred up. So how do you know that? Because multitudes of people were coming out to hear John. 
Multitudes of people were coming out to the middle of nowhere just to hear the message that John is preaching. And then we see Jesus come on the scene. In this account given by Mark, he, after he goes through his time of temptation in the wilderness, comes into Galilee, and in verse 15, what is he preaching? He's preaching the time is fulfilled. Well, what time is fulfilled? The time that the kingdom of God would infiltrate this world. The time when the kingdom of God would infiltrate this world. And he expounds that here in this text. You'll notice what he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. You say, well, what is the kingdom of God? We hear of many different kinds of kingdoms, don't we? Different kinds of kingdoms. A kingdom simply refers to the reign and dominion of a particular authority. And that particular authority and reign belongs to the Lord himself. So when you consider the kingdom of God, this kingdom is the reign and dominion of God among men on the earth. There is a specific nature to it, all right? Because we know that God, by his own sovereign nature, he owns everything, doesn't he? He has dominion over everything. But there's a sense in which his kingdom would invade the world, and change the hearts of men. And so this particular kingdom would come through a promised king. It would come through a promised king that God said would come, which is why Jesus preaching this is so important in understanding the plan of God and what the Jewish expectation was. The kingdom of God was the long expectation of the people of Israel for a long, long time. All the way back in the Old Testament, you read of these prophecies. Now, let me give you just one. This is, all ties into why we follow Jesus. Bear with me. In Daniel 2 and verse 44, when, when the, the, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the kingdoms, and then there's this stone that comes and destroys all the kingdom and overtakes the others, here's what God says and what he promises through him. Daniel 2 and verse 44. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now that sounds like a pretty awesome kingdom, does it not? A kingdom that comes and invades and takes over and essentially is the only true kingdom remaining. Notice that Daniel says, God says through Daniel, that it would happen in the days of those kings. In the days of those kings. You say, well, what kings? When you go look at Nebuchadnezzar's statue, you're going to see this statue with made of part gold and then silver and bronze and yeah, different various materials. And what you find is that those different materials represent different kingdoms that span the course of history. The gold head is what? The kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon. And then you come down through the image and you'll see the kingdom of the Medo-Persians that came after Babylon. And then you come down through the statue and you see the kingdom of Greece that comes after the Medo-Persians. And what came after Greece? The kingdom of Rome. The kingdom of Rome. Now, church, what kingdom is currently in power in the days of Jesus? The kingdom of Rome. The kingdom of Rome. And what happens, what happens in this prophecy and what's expected 
Daniel says, in the days of these kings, in the days of these kingdoms, there would be a king come and establish a kingdom that shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. You understand what, why this is significant, what Jesus is preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's declaring what God promised would come long ago, that it has arrived. Why is it arrived? Because the king is there. King Jesus. Remember that God has been silent for a few hundred years. And now news of the kingdom is being preached. It has arrived at last. And they've been in expectation for this. They've been anticipating this for a very long time. Now, how do we see the kingdom of God arrive with King Jesus? You see, Jesus made unmistakably clear that with his coming, the kingdom had come, and it was evidenced by his power. When he was casting out demons, you remember what the Pharisees said to him? They said, well, he's just casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, who is the prince of the devils, Satan. In other words, they're saying Satan's casting out Satan. But what did Jesus say? He said, no, so. No, not so at all. He says that I am casting out demons by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. And listen to Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. So that is the evidence, that is the manifestation, that Christ's kingdom came with power in his ministry, and it continues with power through the Spirit and the Word of God even to this present day. Matthew Henry rightly comments here and says, Christ came to set up the kingdom of God among men, that they might be brought into subjection to it and might obtain salvation in it. And he set it up by the preaching of his gospel and a power going along with it. Now understand there is a future aspect to the kingdom of God in which it will be consummated. It will be perfected. But understand that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God was inaugurated and has been ongoing ever since his days. Now think of this Christian for a moment. What better kingdom could there be than a kingdom in which Jesus is the king over it? None. What better king could there be to follow with your life than this king, Jesus? None. Which brings me to letter B, that Jesus not only preached the coming of the kingdom, he preached a command for this kingdom. There's a command here. That applies to all of us. It's a call to all of us. It's a command to all of us. As Jesus is preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the command that he gives in connection with this kingdom announcement? Notice what he says in verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand, and there's one word there that sticks out to me as we begin that next sentence. One little word called repent. Repent. That's not a word that you hear a lot in a lot of churches today. Repentance. Do you know what's missing from the gospel message in many messages that are preached? It's this one word. Repentance. He's calling on the people of Israel to repent. Well, what is it to repent? The Greek term here for repent simply means to change one's mind, feel remorse, to be converted. 
So, so in, in short, Jesus is calling on the people of, of Israel to turn in their hearts and minds to him, to be remorseful over their sin, over their uh, iniquity, and to believe the truth that he is declaring to them. Isn't that the message that we declare every Sunday, every time we meet? What's the point of me getting up here and preaching and standing before you? It is to call people to repent and believe the word of God. That's what it's about. That's what the preaching is about. Now, understand that in the days of Israel, many of them were bound in the bondage of legalism. Many of them were living in idolatry. Many of them were living in sin. Many had given their allegiance to Rome. The people needed repentance. And here's why. Because there is no entrance into the kingdom of God without repentance. You don't get in without repentance. You understand that entering into the kingdom of God is, is not some, some watered-down gimmick like we hear today. If you just do this or repeat after me or you got to do this about your life, you understand, repentance is deeper than that. It's not just some outward show or, or religious rite. It is a transformation in the heart, as we'll see in just a moment. But you understand that without repentance, not only is there no entrance into the kingdom of God, without repentance there is no end but perishing for the sin. You remember what Jesus taught in Luke 13, verse 3. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, this repentance is a change that affects the mind and the heart and the will, making a person new because it is indeed the work of God's grace himself. Charles Spurgeon rightly comments on repentance, and he says, only a change of mind, but what a change. A change of mind with regard to everything. Instead of saying, it is only a change of mind, it seems to be more truthful to say it is a great and deep change, even a change of the mind itself. It's a transformation of the nature. Because true repentance brings about a deep change and a turning from transgression to truth. Because Paul describes something called a worldly repentance, but then there's also a godly repentance. Many people claim they repent, and they put on an outward show, and maybe get religious for a while, but don't stick. You know why they don't stick? Because there was no genuine repentance within the heart. And so understand that connected to repentance is also faith. What else does Jesus point out here about the kingdom of God? He says, repent, but then he also says, believe the gospel. Believing the truth, believing, repentance and faith. You understand that repentance and faith, they are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. They come together. So what is it to believe the gospel? It is to trust, it is to be persuaded of, convinced of it. What is the gospel? Well, we know the word gospel, it simply refers to God's good news to humans, good news in a proclamation. Well, what specifically is the good news? Well, in the context of Jesus here, he's talking about the good news of the kingdom of God. The announcement of the kingdom's arrival was good news to the people. It was good news for them. And so they were called to believe the good news. They had to believe the king. 
So in order to believe the gospel, they had to believe who the king was. Because there's no believing the gospel without believing on Jesus himself. Because he essentially, in his essence, is the good news of salvation to us. They were supposed to believe that he is the one. The one Savior, one Lord, one King. And this truly is where we see the great sin for the Jews in that first, early, early first century. Is that this King and Savior who came to them, they did not deem him their King and Messiah. They deemed him a blasphemer. They deemed him an imposter. A criminal worth being crucified with all the vilest criminals of their day. That brings us to the nature of repentance and faith. That they are indeed gifts of God's sovereign grace at work in his people. You understand they are wrought in the heart by the new birth of the spirit. You and I understand we cannot and will not enter into the kingdom of God or see the kingdom of God without the work we know as regeneration. Which is being born again. Now let me point your attention to this in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, one of the most clear passages on this particular subject of the new birth. John 3 and verse 1 through verse 5 for a moment. You remember a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, very religious man. But something's at work in him that's not at work in the others. He comes to Jesus by night asking him questions about these things. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God be with him. He at least recognizes that, doesn't he? But notice the staggering response from Jesus. It's not, not good enough to recognize that he's come from God or that he can do these signs, but something else has to happen for Nicodemus and for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You recognize that? Unless one is born again, having a spiritual rebirth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, he's thinking, you know, humanly and logically and in physical sense, and he asks the question, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What an absurd idea, right? Jesus says in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. You must be born again. You understand, when Jesus says you must be born again, he's not giving any other option here. There's no side entrance into the kingdom that you can somehow bypass being born again. You can't climb the fence. You can't sneak in some other way. Jesus says you must be born again. And this new birth, understand, it is a spiritual birth. It is something that happens within the heart of a sinner. And so this new birth, understand, it is a miracle of God's spirit that is required for his kingdom. And through this birth, understand, the sinner is cleansed from their sins as they're granted repentance and faith. This is why Jesus alludes to being born of water and of spirit. He doesn't refer to literal water, but the need for cleansing, which was alluded to in Ezekiel chapter 36. 
That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, aren't you a teacher of the Old Testament and you don't understand this? You don't see this imagery that I'm talking about? You must be spiritually reborn. Now this begs the question for all of us here today. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you come to, to, have you had a time in your life in which you know you have believed on Christ? You have faith in him. You have repented and you have faith in him. Those are evidences of the new birth. They are evidences of that, of the new birth. You see, this is the great message of Jesus to the world. The kingdom of God has come. And, has, and all those who repent and believe in Christ are brought into this kingdom. And here's what Paul said to the Colossians, and I love this about Paul. He says to the Colossians in chapter, chapter number 1 and verse 13 and 14, he says of Jesus, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So believer, today understand this, that if you've been born again, if you are a believer, you presently reside in the kingdom of God. You're no longer a slave to the kingdom of darkness. You preside in the kingdom of God. And every believer looks forward to that future, perfected state of his kingdom in which we will dwell forever. Friend, what better kingdom could there be than the kingdom of King Jesus? There is none. But notice with me number two, as this ties together into following Christ. Number two this morning, we see the miracle of Jesus. We first see the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel of this kingdom. Repent and believe is to believe on Jesus. But then there's a miracle here that I think is significant. That Jesus here proves his power to his people. He proves his power. In verse 16 through 18, what do we read? We read that they were casting the net into the sea, and, and in verse 17, Jesus calls them to follow him. Then in verse 18, we see that response from them, that they immediately left their nets and they followed him. Now, just ponder this for a moment. Jesus walks up on the Sea of Galilee, and he just calls, he calls out to them and says, Hey, follow me. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. What if a man walked up to you while you're working on your job and said, hey, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men? What would you do? How would you respond? Would you drop what you're doing and leave your job and just follow him? You might think this guy's crazy. Who's he talking to? I don't know this dude, right? You might think that way. But here's what you got to understand is that Matthew and Mark, they give us a snapshot of this call where Luke gives us more detail about it. More detail about this interaction there on the seashores of Galilee. So I want to point out a couple things to you about this is that, firstly, with this call, there was some prior knowledge of Jesus that these men already knew. If you compare the Gospels, John's account and Luke's account. See, Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist at first. And what was John the Baptist doing? He was pointing people to Jesus. He was pointing people to Jesus. In John 1, 35 and 36, the scripture says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. He's pointing his own disciples. Look at this. Here he is. This is the Lamb of God. Earlier in that same text, he says he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So you understand that they had heard the message of the kingdom from John. They've seen and heard from John the Baptist that who Jesus is supposed to be. 
But there's also this encounter at the Sea of Galilee that was more than just a casual walk by. There's a great miracle that happens that impacts the hearts of these men. If you go with me in your Bible to Luke chapter number 5, let's look at it together for a moment. Luke chapter number 5, verse 1 through 11. Notice this. The Bible says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. That's the same sea. It's also known as Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all the night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had left and they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Do you see how important it is to compare the Gospels with each other? You get more detail to what's happening behind the scenes and what's going on. But notice this text. It sticks out to me. Notice the text that Jesus is at the sea. He's been teaching the word of God. He uses Simon's boat to launch out a little bit, to use it, to give him a little more, a little more voice to his, to, his, to his speaking. Then he tells Simon, put out into the deep a little bit. Well, what's Simon's response? Master, we, didn't, we, we fished literally all night. We didn't take anything in. You think that's a coincidence that this happens right now? In the life of Peter and James and John and Andrew? Not at all. They took nothing that night because God was going to display his glory in Christ the next day. And show them exactly who Christ was. So you understand that Simon at this point, he doesn't, he's not fully convinced about who Jesus is. What's he called Jesus here? What's the first title he calls Jesus? He calls Jesus Master. Master is just a common name for teacher. Even the people who did not believe on Jesus called him master. He seems to be reluctant. But nevertheless, he agrees, I'll let down the net. You're the teacher, I'll let down the net. And in verse 6, you see the miracle. They enclosed a large number of fish, so large that their nets were breaking. <laughs> their nets were breaking. Can you just kind of picture this scene for a moment? Their nets are breaking. And they got so much fish that they call over their partners, the sons of Zebedee, and they got two boats here, and they're filling these boats with fish, and there's so many fish that these boats are on the verge of sinking. Imagine being on the seashore just watching all this happen. Seeing Peter and James and John and Andrew going through all of this. You know what this miracle is? It's an unmistakable display of the power and person of Christ. 
of who he actually is. That he wasn't just another Jewish teacher, another Jewish master, but that he truly is the anointed Christ, the Messiah, the one that God said would come. How else could such a miracle come to pass? And what would this possibly mean about the man named Jesus? You see, this great work proves that Jesus really is who he says he is. In fact, he told his opposers in John chapter 5 this very truth. He said to them, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father that, is given, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what does this miracle do for these men? Well, it proves his power to them and his person, which leads to letter B, that Jesus, through this, has persuaded his people of who he is. You put yourself in Simon's shoes in this narrative for a moment. What would such an experience do to your own heart? Read verse 8. What does Luke say in verse 8? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Oh, master, does it read that way? Oh, Lord. You understand, there's a change that's happened in Peter's mind and heart here. Where he doesn't see Jesus the same way he saw him just a few moments ago. <laughs> he doesn't see him just as another master. He sees him as the Lord. He falls before him acknowledging his own undone, unworthy state that he is sinful. He is sinful. He's sinful. He's broken in humility. Simon here is persuaded, and he's not the only one. Verse 9 says he was astonished in all that were with him. Who else was with him? Those others we see follow Jesus at the shores of Galilee, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You see, Luke's account gives us more detail to what Mark wrote about this call to the disciples of Galilee. And from this text, we can see that Jesus powerfully worked and persuaded his own people of who he was. All of them now know who he is. That brings us to the question, why did they respond to Christ's call the way that they did? Was it because they just saw the great miracle of the fish? Not exactly. You see, God used the miracle of the fish as a means of drawing them to himself, opening their eyes to see exactly who Christ was. But the miracles of Jesus, understand, they did not always convince those who saw them, did they? How many times did Jesus do a miracle, and yet those who saw it still remained unrepentant and unbelieving? What's the difference? You'll notice that the Pharisees, one of the most remarkable one of the most remarkable miracles that Jesus ever did is when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of the Pharisees saw that. And you go read John chapter 11. Did the Pharisees bow and wonder in awe and believe on Jesus? No, they went away after seeing that impossible, that impossible thing become reality. They went away and counseled together how they could kill Jesus. They counseled how to get rid of him. Why did they do that? You understand, what's the difference here? 
What does Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and all others who follow Jesus, respond towards Jesus the way they do? Is it because maybe they're less sinful? Are they more spiritually inclined than the Pharisees were? Not at all. All sinners have the same nature that runs from the light. The answer comes down to the sovereign grace of God. You read John 6, 44, and what what does Jesus say to his hearers? He says, no man can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, these men were spiritually affected by the Lord, which prompted their humble response. They are God's people who hear the shepherd's voice. What did Jesus teach in John 10, 27? He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they do what? They follow me. They follow me. You see, Christ's sheep are drawn by Christ's voice and follow their shepherd when he calls them to himself. And that happens with conversion, and it continues on through the life of the Christian. So with the message of Jesus and the miracle of Jesus, what does he command of them? In verse 10, he says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Sound familiar? You go to Mark's account and we're reading the same thing. Well, here's what I want you to see in verse 11. Again, we see the response is that they left everything and followed him. You understand that because of who Christ is and this call upon their life, The rest of their lives would be committed to Jesus, to his gospel, and to his kingdom. Why? Because they see Jesus for who he really is. And friend, unless you don't, until you see Jesus for who he really is, you'll never follow him as you ought to follow him. It just won't happen. You see, at one point, many of the followers of Jesus turned away. You know why they turned away? Because they followed Jesus for the wrong reasons. You go read John chapter 6, you're going to find a great departure happens there. Why? Well, firstly, these people had followed him because they saw his miracle of the loaves and fishes. Man, Jesus, we'll never go hungry again. He can just instantly give us food. Let's go find Jesus. Doesn't matter if he's in the desert, we'll be next to Jesus. They followed him because of what he could give them not because of who he was. And then when the hard teachings came, the hard teachings of John chapter 6, which even today still ruffle many people, and many people say, oh, I just can't accept that, they left. But then he asked those that he called on the shores of Galilee, Peter and James and John, and those his, his disciples, he says, will you also go away? Remember what Peter answered him with? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are who? The Holy One of God, the Christ. They're not leaving because of who Jesus is. Not because of what he could, they could get out of Jesus, but because of who Jesus is. And I want you to understand, Christian, that that still is a great dynamic and problem today. There are many professing Christians who claim Jesus based on what they can get from Jesus, not because of who he is. That is a false following. And when they fail to no longer get what they think Jesus should be giving them, they're going to depart and go away. 
Christian true followers of Jesus follow him because of who he is, not because of what they can get out of him. He's not some genie in a bottle. He's Lord. He's, he is, he's king and he is savior. They're persuaded of him. So I ask all of us today, it really all comes down to our own heart. What about you? Are you persuaded of who Jesus really is? Or do you only attempt to follow Jesus based on other reasons? Maybe something you can get out of him. Maybe you just want to have a social circle in the church. Those aren't good enough. You must follow Jesus for who he is. Because anything else is a foundation of sand and will not hold up. It just won't. Do you believe on him for who he is and what he has done on the cross? That is what you must see. That brings me to letter three and lastly. We see the mandate of Jesus. This is a mandate to all of his people. And it is that firstly, God's people must follow the Messiah. Our call in life is the call to follow Jesus. We don't trust Jesus and get saved as if, we, as if okay, we've, we're on our way to heaven. But then I'm just going to go do my own thing for the rest of my life. It's not how it works. There are many people who just want to get out of hell free card, and that's not how it works. If you have that, you don't really have a get out of hell free card. <laughs> There's no such thing. See, the new birth changes our life. It changes our direction. It changes our passions. It changes our desires. That doesn't mean our flesh isn't still at war with us, but we are a new creature in Christ. And here's what we find with this. It's that little command. Jesus says to them two words, follow me. Follow me. Don't follow yourself. Don't follow another person, but follow me. You see, this is not just an invitation here. It is, it is a command to the people of God. And the disciples obeyed that. In verse 18, we read they immediately, of Mark, they immediately left their nets and followed him. See, there was no weighing the options here. There's no putting on the scale. Well, following Jesus is this, and then following myself, I can do this. There's no trying to balance two worlds. There's following Jesus. And likewise, Christian, today understand that your call is to follow Jesus. Your call is to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. And I won't let it be known to you today that following Jesus does come with a cost. Many people think, well, if I get Jesus and I'm going to heaven, my life's just going to be a lot easier. Actually, it just got a whole lot tougher. <laughs> Don't be fooled by that lie. Once you follow Jesus, once you come to know Christ and you follow him in your life, you understand you're running against the current of your flesh and the world and the devil. You're running against strength. Jesus taught his followers this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Listen to this. He said to them, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We could expound that for a long period of time, but you understand that taking up a cross is not putting on your jewelry that has a cross on it. Taking up your cross is a badge of suffering, of affliction, of hardship. Following Christ involves that. It is not easy. There is a cross to bear. There is a warfare with your own self to deny it and to mortify the flesh. You say, oh, is this cost worth it? Beyond measure, it's worth it. 
I wish more Christians today would understand this, that following Jesus faithfully, it is worth it, Christian. It's worth it. There's nothing, there's nothing greater in this world than following Christ. No follower of Jesus will ever regret having followed him as they cross the finish line into his glorious presence. Living for Christ is the only way to truly live. Our lives need to be committed to that because his kingdom is what we are now a part of. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Charles Spurgeon rightly comments here. He says, oh friends, it is a glorious thing when we, can, when we make no calculation of cost, but with our whole heart and soul follow the Lamb whithersoever he leads us. And tied into this, letter B and lastly, not only is it that God's people must follow the Messiah, follow Christ, what else do we glean from this text? God's people are to be fishers of men. We're to be fishers of men. Because following Jesus has a specific mission involved with it. And that mission is the souls of sinners. The souls of sinners. You see, Peter and these men were great fishers of fish. It was their livelihood. But Jesus is going to teach them to fish for a greater prize. And that is the souls of his people he's purchased with his own blood. He says, I will make you to become fishers of men. What a great analogy for advancing the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God is made up of people in Christ. And these disciples were not just to walk around and only listen to Jesus. He would train them to turn the world upside down. And he would do this by his own power. And this all ties into the commission that's been given to us as a local church. It is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You say, why is this mission so important? Why must we be fishers of men declaring the gospel to a lost and dying world? Because just as Jesus called these disciples by his power, you understand that he's continuing to call his people out of darkness by that same power. Christ is not done saving sinners. And he uses us as the means to that end. It's not in your power that sinners are saved and fish are caught. It is Christ's power through his word, through his spirit. And we have the privilege of having a little part in that. His word is his voice that draws the sheep to himself. And how amazing it is that we're involved in such an endeavor. So today we're pressed with a great question from our text. Are we followers of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? That's really the question. Take it to your own heart. Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you today truly know him firstly? Have you come to see your own sinful and wretched state and that Christ alone is Lord and Savior and King and you must repent and have faith alone in him? Have you come to have faith in him? Have you, have you been born again? Do you know that for sure? And if you have, if you know that you're saved, you know that your hope is resting in Christ alone, your salvation is in him alone, are you following him with your life? Does your life reflect that which is a disciple of Jesus Christ? May it be said of all of us when our time is done that they followed Jesus to the end. 
as they followed Jesus to the very end. Let us stand to our feet as we close with prayer and a song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the great gospel accounts that you've given to us in the scriptures. We can read and see the glory of Christ in his earthly ministry. Now his power affected the disciples and he called them to himself. And how much that applies even to us, Lord. How you've called us to yourself. Out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've brought forth your kingdom through your power, through your, through your word. And Father, it continues on. Help us to recognize what a holy privilege it is to be a part of that. Help us not to take it lightly. We're so easily caught and drawn to things of the world, things of our flesh. We're easily distracted from keeping our eyes upon Christ. Help us, Father. Stamp eternity upon our hearts. Set it upon our eyes. Help us to be true followers of Christ day by day for your glory and for your praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.